right side. Light this bitch up. This is Blackball. Okay, today is a pretty unique interview for me. I first started speaking with a lawyer by the name of Alka Pradhan about two months ago regarding the human rights cases that her and her firm were involved with, specifically pertaining to prisoners inside Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And through a subsequent acquaintanceship that I've had with Alka, we were able to secure our guest today. Our guest today is the lawyer who represents this man. His name is Amar Al-Baluchi, and he, was, he has been in Gitmo since 2006. If you've ever seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty, you may have remembered that there was a prisoner inside that movie for the first like half hour or something of the film. And it almost seemed like he was like a crash test dummy for CIA, CIA agents to practice uh, what they would call enhanced interrogation techniques, what most people would call torture. And um, the, the producers of the film even admitted that uh, it was based off of Amar and also that the CIA actually gave more information to the producers of that film than they did to Amar's actual attorneys. So we today are going to speak with one of those attorneys, and his name is James Connell. James, welcome to Blackbolt, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. So you are right now in, are you in Delta Camp right now? Where are you right now? Uh, no, I'm in what's called a containerized housing unit, uh, which is a, um, a military housing that they put us in uh, down here at Guantanamo. Um, this is to be honest, the nicest we've ever had. We've stayed in all kinds of stuff from tiny little rooms to regular hotels. And um, this containerized housing unit is the nicest place I've ever stayed on uh, on Guantanamo. I can promise you the prisoners don't have it as good. No, they don't. And that's uh, one of the main reasons why you're here. Can you give me first a sort of uh, intro on how um, the case came to you and uh, what you thought of it when you first uh, started reading about Amar's case? So I first got involved in um, Amar's case back in 2008, and uh, I was a death penalty lawyer uh, at the time, working mostly in Virginia, but also in Texas and uh, D.C. to some extent. And uh, I had a, a co-counsel who was an Army reservist who got called up to um, the office that defends people at Guantanamo Bay. And... Um, Amar's case was a death penalty case. They knew they needed a death penalty lawyer. They reached out to me, and I, I wasn't the lead lawyer on the case at the time at all. Um, but I did a lot of work on the case. And then when the Obama administration came in uh, in January of 2009, they uh, essentially dropped the cases, the military commission death penalty cases. And um, my involvement was basically over, but um, the one thing that I came out of it with was a security clearance. And uh, when the Obama administration later decided to restart the cases in 2012, they were looking for an attorney um, to lead the defense of Amar al-Baluchi, and they remembered that I had been involved, and they reached out to me. Uh, now, at the time, um, the contractor, the, the arrangement that I had uh, was only for 18 months. Um, everybody expected the case to be charged by September 11th of 2011. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I said 2012, but it was actually 2011. Uh, by September 11th, 2011, and um, to be in trial within a year. Um, that turned out not to be true at all. And here it is, 2023, and uh, we're still somewhat in the middle of the case. We're still a long way out from a trial. Why isn't the principle of speedy trials relevant to the prisoners at Gitmo? Well, it's relevant, but like a lot of other principles that we as a democracy hold dear, it's it's mostly ignored down here at Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. um, the Every administration 
including the Biden administration, has taken the position that the Constitution uh, doesn't apply down here at Guantanamo because we are in what the Bush administration originally called the legal equivalent of outer space. And what they meant by that was we're neither fish nor fowl nor good red herring. Uh, we're not really anything. Uh, there's a very undefined relationship of Guantanamo Bay, uh, which is on a, uh, a piece of land which is technically on Cuban soil, but uh, has been under 100% American uh, control since 1902. And the Bush administration thought that what that meant was that they could do whatever they wanted down here. Now, that hasn't turned out to be 100% true. They can't do whatever they want. But uh, no court has ever been ever been willing to address the question of, does the Constitution follow the flag? Does the fact that we've had more than 100 years of complete control at Guantanamo mean that the Constitution applies down here? And speedy trial is one of several core principles, uh, like the idea that we don't use information derived from torture, like the idea that people have a right to uh, against self-incrimination, like the idea that Miranda rights apply, that have never made their way down here to Guantanamo Bay because no court has been willing to address that question. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because it's not just about the the weird idea, the abstract idea of, of essentially being in outer space. But it's also the designation of the prisoners originally as enemy combatants. Um, we had a case here in Canada, the Omar Cotter case. And, you know, these, these um, you know, the, the lack of protections for him, he was 15 when, when yeah. he went there. So the only thing that could, um, you know, not justify, but uh, legitimize, I guess, his imprisonment would be those two things the fact that it's it's a lawless area i guess is what he means by outer space when george bush said that and also the designation of enemy combatants can we focus on that for a second because is that not like the first domino to not being able to have rights as a prisoner inside gitmo absolutely it is and the the designation of a person under the geneva conventions as to what status they fall into is critically important in determining what protections they get and the way that it basically works is this if you are a prisoner of war that is that you are associated with the state in some way and that and you've been captured then there's a whole panoply of rights that apply under the geneva conventions but if you're not a prisoner of war, if you are some other kind of detainee, and there are other kinds of detainees, then you're protected, still protected under Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, so-called Common Article 3, because it's in all four conventions. And that protects you against torture. It, it protects you against gross abuse. It protects you against having courts that don't follow the, the guarantees of civilized society. But what President Bush did with his enemy combatant idea um, which the words enemy combatant themselves are contentless, right? They don't mean anything. They don't have a legal effect. But what he thought it meant was that he didn't have to apply either the Geneva Conventions or the sort of catch-all protection for everybody else because he came up with a very tortured reading of the, of the language where he said that uh, anyone captured in the war on terror, even if they were fighting on behalf of a state, right, Afghanistan, um, would be excluded from the Geneva Conventions altogether, even the catch-all that would protect you or me if we were captured uh, in connection with an armed conflict. Yeah, it had a lot to do with things like uniforms, right? Like, like if you weren't wearing a, a military uniform or belong to a state, right? Like if you weren't fighting on behalf of a nation state and in, inside a uniform. And it was, you know, and and listening to Alberto Gonzalez, like there was a um, what was the clip where he described the uh, the enhanced interrogation techniques as quaint. And wow. these are the same techniques that were used on Amar. Can you give us a rundown of some of the things that Amar Albaluchi has experienced, um, not just since he's been in Gitmo, but for wasn't he he, he was a, he was captured in. 2003, I think, wasn't it? It's was almost exactly 23 years ago on uh, April 29th of 2003. So mm -hmm. just 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 uh, a little over a week ago was the 20th anniversary of his being held um, in in pretty incredible uh, conditions. So back in 2003, after he was captured and turned over to the CIA, um, he was subjected to what anyone who actually saw it uh, would call torture. So we're, we're talking about like if you just watched a random movie that was about torture, you would probably see these kinds of techniques being suspended from the ceiling by his hands, 
being forced to stay awake for days at a time, uh, being put in a tarpaulin of, uh, of ice water and then, and then submerged under it. So it's the equivalent of taking someone's head and, and drowning it underwater, except that you put the, you tie them down in the tarpaulin and you bring the water up to meet them, submerge them, drown them in the ice water, and then let them down to breathe for a moment and then uh, bring it back up again. One of the most damaging techniques uh, that was used on Amar um, was essentially to take him uh, by the neck, use his neck as a fulcrum, and then bash him against a wall over and over and over. And in your introduction, you mentioned that Amar was used as a training prop. One of the things that puts the total lie to the idea that this was intended to elicit information is Amar's case. And the CIA has acknowledged that in Amar's case, he was used as a training prop, that there were a series of, of four people who uh, were trying to get certified as interrogators, and they needed their certification. So they just lined up for hours, bashed his head against the wall until not Amar couldn't take it anymore, until they couldn't take it anymore. And then they would rotate to the next person because they got tired. Um, and that's, that's not something that I came up with. That comes out of the declassified CIA internal review of what they did to Amar. Um, and that had incredible long-lasting effects. Um, as you would expect, a person whose head has been smashed against a wall repeatedly until they lose consciousness, um, would what would you expect? A traumatic brain injury. And that's exactly what we find with Amar, is that he has uh, very severe long-term effects to this day. Uh, they're really getting worse, just slowly declining over time uh, from that traumatic brain injury. Uh, what has... Uh, been unearthed as far as what kind of useful information that one can glean from a person when they put them under such duress. I, we've heard in the past many lawyers, lawyers such as yourselves, um, talk about how, you know, there the really is nothing of value and eventually they'll tell you anything that you want them to tell you. Has the Department of Defense lawyers or i don't know who would it be the cia well it would be the cia lawyers i guess but i guess the, the american government lawyers who represent the state against amar al-baluchi and others how do they argue that these techniques are valuable or do they just say that's classified and we can't get into security answers? no what the actual situation is uh is that the two concepts that you mentioned are linked a, a person will tell you anything eventually if they uh, that in order to make torture stop, right? The idea that there are these tough guys out there that are that are going to be able to withstand uh, torture is is really the idea of Hollywood. Uh, it's not it's not the reality, but that's one of the things that robs any information that you get of value. I mean, what does it matter if you get information from somebody if they've if they've you know, if you want to know, if you say, tell me Joe's name and they tell you, yes, it was Joe, uh, you know, what, of what real intelligence value is to that whatsoever. And so that has created an interesting situation in these military commissions that we have, uh, where the government has abandoned the idea that the actual information obtained by the CIA had any value at all, and um, that they're not at this point, they're not even trying to use it in court. What they're trying to do instead is to use information that they got shortly after the torture. Uh, they brought in another team of FBI agents um, to essentially ask the same questions that the CIA had asked uh, and try to get the same answers to use that in a court. Now, that's become a fascinating uh really untold part of this story because what we've turned up uh, through testimony of many, many FBI agents and, and a great deal of uh, documentation is how deeply the FBI was involved uh, in the torture program, that they essentially were the information half of this operation, that they would send questions uh, to the to the CIA who would relay them out to the torturers, who would uh, extract information or answers at least uh, from people in black sites and then circulate it again to the intelligence community. And until this, this case was going on in Guantanamo, that really wasn't known. The FBI had always seemed like sort of the good guys in this situation, but it turns out that their hands were just as dirty as the, as the CIA. It was Abu Abu Zabeda, wasn't it? That had um, uh, that they would use as sort of their poster child for effective torture, essentially. Um, yeah, go ahead. So, 
No, no. Um, so Abu Zubaydah was the first person who was brought into the torture program. And um, it's a complicated story, uh, but it involves both the FBI and the CIA, because initially it was a joint FBI-CIA operation uh, about uh, Abu Zubaydah. And um, if you ask the people who uh, were involved, they'll give you very different answers as to the level of force that was used. But one thing is clear is that this is a man near death. Like they thought he was going to die and, uh, and they have him chained to a hospital bed uh, interrogating him, uh, which is not the sort of, of thing that you would expect to happen ordinarily in a civilized society. Um, and, but after, you know, eventually the FBI, one of the FBI agents at least gets disgusted and leaves. Uh, and that's when the CIA uh, goes back to the president, President Bush, uh, to say, look, this is something that we should have even more power to do and um, and gets presidential permission to expand this program and use it against other people. It, it, it's just amazing to me that, that this, first of all, happened. But second of all, they must know that it doesn't yield good information. So if we were to just speculate for a second, and I know lawyers don't often like to do that, but like if we could just speculate for a second, what would their motive be provided the assumption that they kind of also know that it doesn't work like what is is it to scare others from not committing crimes against the united states like what what could the motivation possibly be or is there an ideology on that side of the military fence that actually still believes that it works no i i would say that a significant part of, part of the motivation uh in that program uh part of it came from ignorance and part of it came from hubris. So the part that came from ignorance is that, that when the CIA started this program, they knew nothing about interrogating prisoners. I know that seems a little bit odd to us, but since the early 1980s, the CIA had had no involvement whatsoever uh, in interrogating prisoners because they're in the human intelligence uh, business. What the CIA did before 9-11 was they would find people, they would go out, recruit people through whatever means uh, to provide them information, and they would take that human intelligence and they would uh, circulate it to the intelligence community. That was their brief. That was their job. And so they weren't interrogating prisoners. They didn't have any prisoners. Uh, and so when this rendition, detention, and interrogation program, which is what the formal name of the torture program, uh, started, is they didn't know what they were doing whatsoever, which is why they turned to outside contractors for, uh, for advice on, you know, how could we put together a program like this. But the second part is hubris. And I really feel, you know, we kind of, politics have changed so much uh, in the in the years since the Bush administration, in many ways for the worse, and you know, in some ways for the better. But but one thing that we can't forget about the early Bush administration is that, led by Gonzalez and Cheney and others, the Bush administration was a big fan of the imperial presidency. They were a big fan of the idea that the executive is essentially a king and can do whatever they want. And um, I think that there was a significant motivation behind this to, to say, listen, if we can establish the power of the presidency to torture people, we can establish any power for them whatsoever, because torture is the outer bound of, of what any state can do to a person. Torture and genocide are the, are the two outer boundaries of the crimes that a, that, a, um, that a state can commit. And if it's okay for the president to torture people, it's okay for them to do anything. And I think that was a key part of it. They wanted to say the president can do whatever he wants. Also, reputationally, around the world, like th this broadcast is from Canada. Um, America is our neighbors. I love Americans. Uh, I go there uh, fairly often or used to before the pandemic. And the what has it done? Because um, there's a lot of things that we as regular people don't see. We don't know what happens in the corridors of the United Nations. We know that the United States is a big superpower. We know that... People don't really want to mess with them or whatever. But are there um, lasting negative ancillary impacts to the reputation of the United States from a human rights perspective because of this program? Oh, my goodness. There's no question that that's true. I mean, there's so many calls in the world, so many important applications right now for human rights, whether we're talking about the, the war in Ukraine, whether we're talking about the the treatment of the Uyghurs and others in China. You know, there are just so many reasons why it's important to have clean hands on human rights issues, not just for the United States, but for the West in general. Um, and, uh, and, you know, every time the United States brings up 
against Russia, for example, of, you know, look at the attacks on civilians. Russia can say, well, Guantanamo is open, isn't it? Look what you did. Yeah. So where are we at then? Um, as far as Amar al-Baluchi's case and when... Um, because, you know, things happen so slow. Uh, you know, I remember uh, when Obama, what was that, 2009, Obama said, okay, we're done with the military commissions. And then, yeah. as you pointed out, they came, you know, they just basically restarted, right? Um, where are you now in that specific case? And what does the timeline look like? Or can you even predict something like that? Because, I mean, the guy's been there for 20, or he's been captured for 20 years, but he's been in Guantanamo now for 17 years. Right. So this, the case that's good, there've been two military commissions case, one that you point out that, um, that Bush started, but Obama ended. And then Obama's military commission case that they started, uh, that that administration started was almost exactly 11 years ago. Uh, so it started on the 5th of, um, May, 2012. And, um, I've been involved with it you know, essentially full-time since that time. And the case is really kind of in the middle. Uh, we're waiting for uh, the judge to rule on some discovery matters. Uh, what does the government have to turn over? Um, we're, uh, there has been a, a proposal for, um, for plea bargaining, and we're waiting to see if that goes anywhere. Um, but the case may return uh, to active litigation this summer, or it might not. You know, it's just, it's impossible to know. And I've, I've glossed over an awful lot there. So, uh, you know, if you have no, okay. questions about any specifics <laughs> of that, I'm happy to address it. Well, one thing is, is the is the plea bargain, because I, I know that there was a little bit of controversy. I don't remember how many years ago it was, but where I guess in Guantanamo uh, near the, um, I guess the cells, uh, the, the, uh, the, the military put listening devices and they had essentially introduced as evidence a so-called confession from Albulucci. Can you tell us what that was? So um, I there I think maybe a couple of things there got conflated there. There oh, was sorry. an issue where uh, there was listening devices, not so much of the of the prisoners, but of the lawyers. Oh. Uh, that led to, led to a big issue in the case because uh, we discovered a lift, listening device. Uh, in the spaces where the attorney and clients met together. Wow. Um, that was shortly followed by um, an, an event when the we were going along in court and uh, a remote intelligence officer reached in and turned off the court, uh, shut off the, uh, the feed to the outside world, uh, uh, started a, uh, a white noise generator, and the judge got very mad because up to that point, the judge had thought that he was in control of the court, like an ordinary judge, yeah. uh, but that really disabused him of that notion. So those things all happened very close in time. Uh, there were a lot of other um, problems that arose from intelligence and law enforcement interference in the case. Uh, one of the teams had an uh, an analyst on that team recruited as an FBI informant from inside the team. Uh, the There have been a lot of uh, questioning of team members. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why the case takes so long is that the law enforcement and intelligence elements in the case have not gotten out of their own way, don't seem to be able to get out of their own way, and have did a lot to, to interfere with the case moving forward. Yeah, there was a... Um... What was it? Uh, I'm trying to. I'm sorry. I'm trying to think back to, to the notes that I don't have in front of me. Um, yeah. The 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 idea that there was uh, that that Albulucci had confessed when he was really just sort of discussing his case and the possibility of just ending it by making a plea deal that was described as a confession, wasn't it? Oh, I see. Um, yeah. the, so I can't comment on the um, on the means by which the information was acquired, okay. Uh, okay. but. There was some information introduced in court about a conversation that Amar had, you know, where he's discussing possible, what can we do in this case? What can we do to get it over with? What if I pled guilty? Um, and, um, and yes, that was, that was at one point uh, characterized as a confession. Um, there are some, there are some legitimate plea negotiations that have been going on um, since uh, March of 2022. Um, there were proposals put forth by both sides uh, to bring it into the case to get some judicial finality to this case that's been going on for, you know, in one form or another for 15 years now. And um, what we're 
doing now is waiting to see whether the Biden administration uh, will give us an answer as to whether they think those proposals will hold water or not. Um, we're, it's not even a question of we're waiting to, you know, we're trying to get to yes yet. We're just trying to get any kind of answer of uh, we've put forward some proposals um, and we've worked with the prosecution. And now we're just waiting to hear, you know, what do you all think in the administration? And uh, it's been 14 months since we sent up those proposals um, and we still don't have any kind of answers. And, and some of the uh, evidence that the uh, that has been brought um, against Al Baluchi is really kind of it, it just seems flimsy even when you just read it. Um, there was the uh, his name was Marwan Al Shehi, and he was like a businessman who did business with like several Americans, but sure. none of those Americans were accused of like offering material support for terrorism. Was Al Baluchi um, a person? Maybe you can talk a little bit about him more as a sure. person. Let's let's humanize him for a second. Because was he in the wrong place at the wrong time? Did he have bad friends but wasn't involved? Like, can you give me an idea of his chronology in this case? Like, or yeah, before sure. He, before he was captured. Sure. Uh, so, uh, Amar was born in Kuwait, and um, but he wasn't a Kuwaiti. Uh, being born in Kuwait doesn't make you a Kuwaiti. They have a sort of understrata of society uh, of people who are are citizens of other countries um and but he grew up speaking arabic you know in fact he really grew up as a child thinking that he was kuwaiti uh but then uh his family moved uh from there back to his homeland which is baluchistan now baluchistan is the uh, southernmost province of iran it's also the westernmost province of pakistan uh it, it at one point was uh, essentially one big area, but the British divided it up at some point um, in 1871, actually, uh, like the British divided up so many places uh, mm -hmm. and created so many artificial lines. And Baluchistan is one of those. And um, eventually, uh, the Iranians brought it under the control of Iran. And uh, it's an unbelievably rural, poverty-stricken area, but it's also unbelievably oppressed within um, within Iranian society, which is, you know, already an incredibly oppressive society. But uh, the Baluchi in general are Sunni Muslim instead of Shia Muslim, which places them outside uh, the mainstream of Iranian society. Uh, the uh, the Baluch are ethnically different than the Persians, which places them uh, in, a, in a place where they are um, uh, discriminated against. And essentially the, the it, there's sort of a colony of Iran where they're really just exploited for their economic resources. So he moves back to Baluchistan, which is a, a very uh, tough situation, but he makes the best of it. He, when he shows up in Baluchistan, he doesn't speak Farsi at all, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because he had grown up in Kuwait, uh, speaking either Baluchi in the home or speaking um, uh, Arabic in school. And, but he buckles down, he learns Farsi, he uh, passes an exam and he gets into an elite school. Uh, he goes to that elite school um, uh, for a while, and then eventually he uh, uh, goes to a different school, graduates, and gets into computers. He gets his uh, Microsoft certification. He's a Microsoft certified software engineer at that time, and he goes to Dubai, uh, where he works at a computer company. And um, like a lot of people uh, who travel from uh, South and Central Asia to to the Gulf to earn money and send it back to their families. Um, now, one of the ways, of course, that you earn money and send it back to your family is uh, is by wiring it, and that's that's true all over the world. Uh, is that I'm sure that in Canada you have a lot of people who uh, move there in search of a better life and send money back to their families wherever they may be. Uh, and a process, that, I believe, if I may say, was invented in the Middle East, wasn't it? The, the, yeah, that, that type of banking, right? Yeah, so. that's right. The you know in the Arab Empire when they um, you know, was very economically advanced uh, a long time ago. And and now it all works on with wire transfers and stuff, of course. But yeah. um, and so essentially what the allegations against our, him are is that his uncle, and here we come to this important part, his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, gives him money and says somebody's going to call you for it. And um, and somebody does call him. He wires the money. Those are that. And uh, some people who transited through Dubai and he went to the mall with them and stuff are essentially the allegations against Amar. And um, so it's not exactly right, uh, wrong place, wrong time. It's more like wrong family. Um, and 
I, I've often thought that if he were not the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, that we not might not find ourselves in this situation. Yeah, it, it, and I, I, I kind of hate this term, so I'm not, I don't mean it literally, but um, it sounds like he played the role of the, quote, useful idiot, right? Like, like he was, uh, unbeknownst to him, there was some darkness <laughs> attached to that money because um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is the person who, um, the mastermind, I guess, or whatever, of 9-11. Um, so, and there's nothing a, illegal about wiring money. I mean, people right. wire billions of dollars every day, and um, there's nothing illegal about having cash and wiring it someplace else. Uh, it's only if it is in service of a uh, some illegal uh, activity um, that – that it becomes illegal and and so that's kind of determined retroactively right uh you know he didn't know anything more about 9-11 than anybody else did um but retroactively it all gets pieced together into into a conspiracy I, i'm trying to figure out how to word this question because I, I don't want it to sound um either flippant or ignorant but when at what point does the guilt or the innocence of a person almost become not irrelevant but secondary to the extreme torture that they experienced? Like, can they be compartmentalized? If you know what I mean. What, yeah, absolutely. I, I will tell you that one of the things that I often express about this case, because what, let me tell you that when we have these hearings down there, they are super intense, right? We have five defendants. We have a, uh, an army of lawyers on both sides. We have uh, victim family members. We have non-government organizations who come to observe. I mean, you know, it is an intense experience down here. And um, I always try to take account of both of the factors that you just talked about, which is that of the people who show up down here to watch, half of them come to see the trial of people who they blame, or at least they blame some of them, for uh, the death of their loved ones on 9-11. And then we have other people uh, who come to see information about the torture that their or the United States government committed. And both of those things can be important at the same time, right? B by acknowledging the torture of Amar and other men, you're not diminishing the suffering on 9-11. And by acknowledging the suffer on, suffering on 9-11, you're not diminishing the fact that the United States committed, uh, you know, heinous international crimes uh, against people in its custody. So to me, the way that I look at it, James, is not that one makes the other irrelevant. It's that both of those things have to exist in tension with each other at the same time. And it's one of the challenges for me um, as, as an advocate who cares deeply about my client, but also recognizes the suffering of the victims and their family members, uh, to negotiate both of those avenues at the same time. Yeah, that must be really difficult because like, it must be like a labyrinth of of ideas that get all tangled up from one side of the court to the other because, you know, um, it, it must be a natural instinct for those people that are in the gallery to think, well, if that person's guilty, I don't care if he got tortured, right? And if that person is innocent, um, he, he shouldn't have been there anyways. Like th there seems to be an appetite for um, that type of violence. Um and, and look, I guess it comes from a place of grief or something, right? Like, I, I understand it to a certain degree. But it seems um, like these have, these cases have gone for gone on for so long. I'm, I'm curious, actually, is there any successful... I know that Omar Khadr in Canada sued the Canadian government for denying him... Um, I think it was denying him legal, like, uh, constitutional rights because mm -hmm. they knew what was happening in Guantanamo Bay. And so he sued and, and we settled. Settled, yeah. Yeah. Has there been anything like that for any of the hundreds of inmates that have been in Gitmo and are now gone? There's only been one case uh, where there was a successful lawsuit in an American court, um, and that was called Solem versus Mitchell, in which um, uh, the ACLU led an effort to um, – sue uh, some of the people who had involved, been involved in the torture program. Uh, and that case ultimately settled. Uh, nobody knows for how much because it was it was sealed. Um, the, the key to that, however, was that the Obama administration did not assert its state secrets privilege to shut down the case, whereas most of the other cases against contractors or government officials or other people who are involved in uh, abusive detention and torture have been shut have been shut down because of state secrets. Now, in the European courts, there have been some successful cases um, uh, of 
prisoners here at Guantanamo who have successfully sued people or sued other governments because in the European system, you can sue governments much more successfully than you can in the, uh, in the American system. And in Canada too. Uh, yeah. Apparently. Um, yeah. How is Amar doing right now? Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's where I was about to, to go next because it, there's the torture, there's the historical torture, right? There's what the United States did. There's the historical uh, attacks on 9-11, which are important. And then there's the here and now. And the Amar is a person who uh, has suffered deeply uh, from torture and continues to do so. I mentioned earlier the traumatic brain injury that he has. Um, the, you know, his, his actual brain was changed by the way that they abused him, both by the physical abuse of being hit against a wall, but also by the, the essentially the soaking in stress hormones for years at a time uh, that essentially decays your brain over time. Uh, and there's been some very powerful studies on that, that uh, about how that works. Uh, but but what it, it makes sense that a person who's under unbelievably intense strain for a great period of time uh, and that that continues out of the CIA black sites and into Guantanamo, where they were held in in continue to be held in solitary confinement, complete solitary confinement until 2009, and then uh, and then it was slowly stepped down over time. And so we're talking about you know years and years of not speaking to another human being who's not your captor, and uh, there's no way that a person comes out of that in a uh, in a in a healthy mental state. And so that's where Amar finds himself. You know, he he can't remember things. He can't concentrate. He can't think. He can't sleep. Uh, and those issues are not, not going to go away. And that's sort of the third leg that has to be negotiated in the case, which is that there's the historical torture, there's the historical uh, attacks of 9-11, but then there's also the continuing effect that the torture has on Amar as he tries to deal with unbelievably complex legal issues. When was the last time he was actually interrogated? The last time he was actually interrogated was January 30th of 2007. Wow. 16 years ago. I don't even know how to characterize how I think I might feel. I mean, he, he's been there for most more than half his life, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Um, does he, how are his spirits as far as his confidence in the system? I almost laugh at myself saying that, but I, I mean, yeah. you know, like I, I, part of your job as a lawyer, right. Is, is to try to, is to recognize your client obviously um, has been through hell and back but also to be like, listen, we gotta, we gotta try to have some hope. Like, is there any hope in this man left? Like, how could there be, you know? Well, yeah, confidence in the system is not a, a phrase yeah. that can, you know, accurately be used for anybody here at Guantanamo. I mean, mm -hmm. w w there, are, there are people here at Gu Guantanamo who've been here for 20 years and never even seen the inside of a courtroom. And so in, in one sense, there is some advantage to having a judge who will listen to some things, uh, to have lawyers who are who can are you know funded to work on your behalf. Uh, so there is that's not confidence in the system, but it is it is closer to due process than some of the situation that many of the men have had, where you know there are are sixteen men here at Guantanamo who have never been charged with anything, will never be charged with anything, and are have been cleared for release by an administrative body consisting of all the US intelligence agencies, and they're still here at Guantanamo. And then there are three more forever prisoners uh, who um, are not authorized to be released ever, have, not, have never been uh, authorized, uh, have not been cleared, and have never been charged with anything, which means that they've never had any chance to defend themselves in a court. Um, Mohammed Rahim, who is my other client, uh, falls into that category of a person who has just been drifting uh, in the in the prison cells of Guantanamo for more than a decade and a half. So how? Okay, maybe I'll ask it like this: How come the Hague have never uh, tried to? Is it just because America is a superpower? Like I can't imagine many countries getting away with doing this unless they're the United States. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the United States, um, after supporting the 
um, creation of the International Criminal Court withdrew its support for the criminal and the International Criminal Court. But then it went around and signed bilateral agreements uh, with essentially every country in the world not to extradite any American uh, to The Hague. So uh, essentially, the United States has negotiated um, immunity for itself from prosecution for war and international human rights crimes. And so just to circle back to that previous question about the uh, reputation internationally, uh, you know, they have they built a firewall around themselves, like the United States as a, as a country, as far as accountability goes in these cases, then have they successfully built that firewall? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if if charges were brought against a U.S. government official or even even non you, I mean, not a governmental official, just somebody, a contractor or somebody else who were involved, uh, no country could legally extradite them to The Hague to face charges there. But I will tell you this, that there was a bright spot this year in January um, that we had not seen before, which is that a uh, United Nations Special Rapporteur uh, was able to visit Guantanamo. She wasn't able to see Amar. She wasn't able to see Rahim. Uh, she wasn't able to see many of the prisoners there, but she was able to go to Guantanamo, which is the first time that that's ever happened. And uh, she was able to... Um, interview an awful lot of people, some prisoners, but a lot of officials down there. And we're expecting a report from her uh, essentially any day now uh, with her findings on on what she discovered when she was there at Guantanamo. So that's the first time that the United, uh, United Nations official has been allowed on Guantanamo. Uh, and so that is a tiny step forward uh, in the account of constant quest for accountability. Uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, because your job must be really stressful. How are you handling all this? Well, that's kind of you to ask. Um, you know, it's been a long time, and I, I basically everybody in the world uh, suffered a lot during uh, COVID, and that was true for me personally. But it was really nothing compared to the men down here. You know, I had family with me that I that I and and it was in my house, and but the isolation that they endured down here. The lawyers who would ordinarily come, the, the staff who ordinarily come down here, um, no one was able to travel uh, for close to a year and uh, for 15 months, nobody was able to come to Guant travel to Guantanamo. And uh, so that meant that they were completely isolated down here. Uh, and that was a really, really dark period for them. I, I would say that as much as anything else, that was a throwback to the severe isolation of the black sites and uh, and the early days of Guantanamo. Uh, are you worried that the room you're in may have listening devices? <laughs> I count on it. Do you really? Plus, I am talking on a public, uh, you know, uh, live stream. So anybody who wants to listen to what I have to say right now is certainly welcome to. Yeah, well, listen, um, I think what you do, I think the work that you do is is massively important. It's, it's a weird spot um, to even um, talk uh, like from my perspective or to even criticize what's happening there because you know the 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 united states is our neighbors and, and i don't view the united states as like this evil entity or anything but um when it comes to the military and when it comes to gitmo and ca black sites and that kind of stuff it is such a black mark on human rights for for a nation like the united states and uh it feels like there is just no way to hold uh, the united states accountable for this so the men like you and people like you, because I know Alka is, uh, is, is such a juggernaut when it comes to uh, when it comes to this stuff as well, that, you know, um, we, I guess, it, collectively, um, the people that care about this issue and these issues rely on uh, people like yourselves to sort of chip away, I guess, at the, you know, at that at that firewall. Um, you know, how confident are you um, that, um, you know, in 20 years, maybe, you know, uh, there'll be uh, there'll be some hindsight wisdom. Uh, on the on on behalf of the government, even if it happens secretly behind closed doors, like are you confident that that may happen eventually one day? No, I'm not at all confident of that. I mean, here we are, 20 years after uh, a Mars capture, and there's been no wisdom, there's been no insight that the United States government seems to uh, have acquired. Um, if if the case returns to litigation as it could, uh, you know, this case could go on for another 20 years. That's that's entirely within the possibility. I don't think anybody wants it, including Amar and, and the others, but um, that administration may not, uh, it, you know, does, is making some progress in getting people out of Guantanamo, but there's no, there's no plan to close it that I know anything about. And um, 
And we're, we normally just la labor away here in darkness where nobody really knows what we're doing. Um, there are a couple of uh, ways to keep up with what we're doing. Um, there are two Twitter feeds that cover us pretty well. Uh, the Gitmo Watch uh, Twitter feed covers us well. And Carol Rosenberg uh, okay. of the New York Times uh, covers us well. Um, Law Dra There's a third one, uh, Law Dragon, uh, is a is a smaller publication that does a great job uh often sends its reporter down here and um but otherwise like it's it's so hard to get here that most of the the don't bother coming um and nobody knows what's happening down here even when we do make strides in moving forward on accountability like the information we've been able to bring out about the fbi it's just hard for people to get that information yeah um well listen I'm proud of you. I think that the work that you're doing uh, is is really important. I know it must be super frustrating, but um, to know that Amar has an ally is a very, very, very small nugget of hope that uh, people that follow these cases can hold on to. And uh, please wish him my best. I know he doesn't know me, but I mean, maybe it's nice to have a stranger tell him that I hope he's doing well once in a while, you know, because the guy's been where he is for so long. And um, I would love to have you back or, or members of your firm back. I, I, I was telling Alka in an email that I think um, I would like to do two shows a month that sort of like navigate around these issues. So whether it's a Mars case or um, I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't your firm also represent people whose families were um, impacted or killed by drone strikes and things like that as well? No, that's not me. It's very much okay. in our space. Uh, and Alka's done a lot of work on that issue, but um, but my issues are mostly um uh, Guantanamo and then open government issues like freedom of information. And then interestingly, music law, uh, is my side, uh, <laughs> really? is my side gig. Um, just to, you know, have a little palate cleanser from time to time. What? So you, you like hook artists up with deals with distributors and things like that? Like what, what is yeah. your, uh... I mean, or help them, you know, what I've found is that, um, music just turns out to be another area in which poor people get exploited. Um, and, and minorities get it taken advantage of. And, um, so, you know, I help people with their licensing and they're, uh, working through their copyright issues and other things because, you know, it turns out that, uh, people are just trying to take their, their money and their, um, and their talent and not reward them properly. So that sounds um, like hip hop. Do you have hip hop clients? <laughs> yes. I interview famous rappers on this show. Maybe we can talk about uh, interviewing a couple of those guys because I don't know. <laughs> that sounds are you, are fun. You and to if... Tell me who you represent. Is that okay? Uh, no, I don't have their permission to tell you. Okay. Well, then I'll bug you in an email. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds uh, good. Well, listen, James, thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, and thank you. I appreciate the work you're doing and bringing some light to these issues. And um, I'd be happy to come back anytime. Okay. Thanks, James. James Cannell, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That was really interesting. I I, I, I don't think I've ever done an interview like that. Um, you know, not, not, you know, just the fact that he was uh, at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba which is crazy in and of itself. And he mentioned that he, he's not sure if any podcasts have been done there. And I'm happy to be the first because I think these issues are, are massively important. Uh, the idea that a person can spend 20 years in a cage without having really any recourse, without having any rights, um, you know, was tortured for years before he even got there. And the world just forget about him. It's, it's a very sad case, uh, and he's not the only one by any means. It's also something that I find really sinister. You know, the, the, oftentimes I feel like the, the American government will violate human rights and then never wants to admit it, and so we'll spend years violating more human rights just as a way to cover up the fact that they were doing it to begin with. And I find it, uh, I find it really disheartening. Um, my big thanks again to James. I think it's Connell. I think I should pronounce it. Con I said Connell, like I was some sort of like, I don't know, British guy or something. Um, I just got an email from Eric Alper. Eric Alper, if you guys remember, is the the music guru. And so, uh, Pat Carey from Downchild is going to be on Blackballed on Friday. And then uh, that's at seven o'clock. And then a famous songwriter, Mark Jordan, will be on at 730. Um, so this uh, apparently those are really big musicians. Um, and I haven't really educated myself as much as I should have, but I will do the deep dive as I always do. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Canadian rapper 
And I would say one of our greatest entrepreneurs that we have in this country, in the hip hop space, Peter Jackson is going to be here. Uh, Peter Jackson also, uh, we had a mutual friend uh, named Sheldon Moore, AKA S Love of the Pox Brothers, who passed away tragically last year uh, of cancer. And that's kind of how we connected uh, through our mutual admiration of uh, what, what we would call a super producer, a behind the scenes um, hip hop magician, uh, Sheldon, uh, who passed away last year. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. He's also doing big things. He, uh, uh, I think he, uh, he has a tour coming up and he has, uh, he has a company. I'm sorry. I forget the name of it right now. We'll cover all this tomorrow, but, uh, who brings up like big acts from golden era and current, uh, rap guys as well that, that will tour the country and he owns the touring company. So he's, He's like a legit businessman and he's a dope ass rapper as well. So, um, so that should be fun. And, um, to be perfectly honest with you, I am completely on the fence of whether or not I'm going to do a catch Friday this week. Uh, my internet is not acting up. Uh, I, I feel like Elon Musk is just going to be like, Oh, that guy, let's ruin his podcast. That's my Elon Musk impersonation. It's not very good, but you know, I try. Um, but again, uh, Peter Jackson tomorrow, and uh, those two artists whose names I, can't, <laughs> I already forgot, Pat, Pat Carey from Downchild and Mark Jordan uh, on Friday. And uh, thank you again uh, to James Connell and to everyone who's watching. And we'll see you next time on Blackball. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Kids, I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast, podcast for you. you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on, on the Dean Blundell Network. Network. Or on our YouTube channel. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Because democracy, democracy is, is something, something you do. do.